0: I have climbed to the top of a greasy pole. Those are the words of Benjamin Disraeli upon becoming prime minister. And uh, in today's episode of the Political Tipster, we will be talking about the uh, Tory leadership election, uh, which is currently going on. So I think we began with 11 candidates and we've been whittled down to five. And uh, today, yeah, We've got a very special guest uh, who uh, is a regular contributor to uh, Bourne Brook, um, Andrew Collingwood. Welcome to the show. Hello, Julian. Thanks for having me. And uh, I believe you've started a little project as well called uh, Britannic. Could you explain a little bit uh, about that? Yeah, sure. Um,
1: Britannic is a weekly newsletter. Um, it's not another Substack or anything like that. It's a genuine newsletter that is emailed every Monday, and it's builders, essays, polemics, um, beauty, and uh, articles for the intelligent Britain. So what we try to do is uh, we try to look at the week's events and the major issues of the day, um, but find uh, articles and essays and polemics. That are a little bit more thoughtful, perhaps a little bit more academic, and certainly beautifully written, so that people can get a uh, broader and more interesting and more erudite uh, view of the week. And we then combine those with, um, you know, left field articles uh, for your older listeners, perhaps um, the sort of things that Trevor McDonald used to say on the news at ten, and finally, and then talk about some quirky little story. So. For instance, in uh, this Monday's edition, we're going to have a a link to an article about um, writing about time travel, for example. In previous ones, we've had similar such articles. We had one about um, the first ten minutes of the Pixar film Up. Um, But yeah, those are are kind of coupled with, you know, fairly serious and well-written, quite often long-form articles and essays um, of the week uh, about about the issues of the week, and uh, we also have. Some photographs of, um, you know, the beauty of Britain, its landscape, its architecture, its nature, its wildlife, uh, which I call uh, a little bit of chicken soup for the Patriots' soul. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it seems to be going very well. Uh, we actually, uh, to my surprise, actually, we actually get people emailing and writing in how much they enjoy it, which I suppose is a good sign. And the subscriber numbers are gradually going up as well. So, um Yeah, if if people are interested, they can find that by uh, going to Bornbrook's website and the special uh, Britannic page, which is bornbrookmag.com forward slash Britannic, which is spelled exactly like the adjective Britannic, but with a Q instead of a C at the end. So B-R-I-T-I-N-N-I-Q.
0: Well, I've certainly been uh, enjoying them and uh, very much looking forward to uh the latest drop tomorrow. Um, but today we're going to talk about the Tory leadership contest. So uh, uh, Collingwood, what, what have you made of it so far? It's been pretty dispiriting stuff,
1: to be <laughs> frank. Um, it, it's one of those leadership elections or, or one of those moments in politics where you suddenly realise what a dire state Britain is in you suddenly realise that the political class has really been doomed by Britain's declining education system over decades, has been doomed by the centralised control that parties have now in selecting candidates, which I think started with Peter Mandelson and Labour, where they really realised that the party needed a a unified message to get over the kind of... Um, some of the hang-ups the British population had about the Labour Party coming out of the 70s and 80s. Huh. Um, and then David Cameron copied with his A-list mm. um, and really trying to control candidates. I think that real combination between, uh, you, you know, a kind of poor education system and that kind of centralised control, which favours candidates who simply told the general party line, has really doomed us to... a pretty dire and depressing and dispiriting crop of potential Prime Ministers. Um, I think it's been, uh, (laughs) as I say, for any kind of British patriot, it's pretty dispiriting to watch.
0: Well, I think uh, I recall uh, when I think it was Peter Hitchens on uh, Question Time when everyone used to ask him, uh, why have you never put your name forward as an MP? And uh, he said, well, simply because I wouldn't be allowed to. And at, at the time, when I watched it, I thought, no, come on. And uh, now, if you look at the entryism into both parties, um, there's just no chance. Um, I remember, actually, when I was a young Labourite back in my days, and uh, I tried to stand the party in the local elections and... Uh, when they found out that i had uh, voted for brexit it was like they were laughing me out the door there was no way i was uh, ever allowed uh, to stand for them and i think for the conservatives uh, it's pretty similar yeah i think there's no there's really no way
1: for or or there's very limited limited pathway shall we say for interesting thinkers who get beyond the political, the, the kind of SW1 consensus really to make their way in the party and to have an effect. We don't have open primaries in the way that they do in America. But as recently as the 1980s and even 1990s, at least they had local party, you know, constituency party committees who would vote and decide on who they were going to put up as an MP candidate. Now that's really been centralised, and the central party offices, both of Labour and the Conservative Party, have a tremendous effect. And I, I think we're seeing it here, where the you know the Conservative Party leadership candidates don't particularly represent the constituency that they created at the last election. Yeah, of and course. and beyond that, of course, Julian, almost all of them. Uh, I know we're going to get onto this a little bit later, perhaps, but the most interesting candidate is, and the one in my view, anyway, that's most likely to would be the most likely to win an election is also the least experienced, and it would be a tremendous mm. risk. But I suppose we'll get onto that later.
0: And uh, the person who they replace, who they're going to replace, Boris Johnson. What legacy is he? Leaving behind your opinion, if there is one.
2: <laughs> yeah, uh, there's not much of a
1: legacy for Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson's uh, um, as soon as Cummings was pushed pushed out of the door, as it. Mm. Johnson was left to be Johnson. And what that meant was that all of Boris Johnson's failures, all of his personality, um, his intellectual laziness, his physical laziness, uh, his desire really to be the chairman of the board and you know let the executives run the company, so to speak, um, his lack of personal moral probity, his blindness to reprehensible behavior among others, his desire really just to have a good time in life. All of those things came to the forefront and they scuppered any chance whatsoever of a meaningful premiership. They ruined the historic moments that he was presented with upon getting an 80 seat majority on the basis of a once a century realignment of British politics. They That personality in being allowed to come to the fore really ruined all of that. So I think that... I think Tom, Tom McTague, who is the, or McTeague, perhaps, uh, who is the, who covers British politics, so the Atlantic magazine in America, and I think is one of the finer commentators on British politics. He argued in a piece a couple of weeks ago that Johnson leaves no legacy whatsoever and achieved nothing except one big thing, which was Brexit. I think perhaps having such a cad and a bounder and at those times when two equally powerful and immovable democratic forces were butting up against each other between uh, 2018 and 2019 and Brexit really seemed log jammed. I think perhaps that personality was useful for a time to force Brexit through and to make sure it happened. And of course he achieved that. But then after that, once that pain, once that real danger passed, once he didn't need Cummings, once he didn't need a team of competent individuals around him, he was easily swayed, Cummings went, and then that was it.
2: There was never going to be anything mm-hmm. achieved after I think that. Uh... I
1: think that's Boris Johnson's real crime. It's, it's it, I mean, it's it, you know, it's not opportunity.
0: Yeah, what, what I thought could have been quite interesting about uh, Johnson was his educational background. So um, back in the sort of 19th century Tory liberal uh, um, era, uh, most of our prime ministers studied classics, and uh, in more recent times it's been PPE, but Johnson was a, uh, a classics man, and um, it's funny, towards the end of his tenure, he reminded me a little bit of, uh, well, he, he saw himself as a bit of a Caesar, I think, like uh, a sort of the popular um, authoritarian leader who is sort of betrayed by the, the politicians in the end. And I think he, he really had this attitude throughout his his, his reign. Yeah, I don't
1: I, I don't think that's wrong, actually. I, I think there's a certain, certainly his resignation speech, there was a certain um, sense of victimhood about that, wasn't it? Like he'd been stabbed even by Brutus. Um, Dems be the brakes. Yeah, them be the break exactly. Um, and again, uh, I mean, it's not that Johnson isn't an intelligent man. He's he, he's clearly highly intelligent. Mm. Um, I mean, I, I, I've seen a clip of him uh, quoting not just a, a phrase or a sentence, but an entire stanza from the Iliad in the original ancient Greek. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, he's he's a smart guy, but I think. Uh, Lord uh, Lord Jonathan Sumption, the, the 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 former Supreme Court judge, um, suggested that he's clearly intelligent; he's just intellectually feckless. <laughs> uh, and uh, I
0: think that was an issue. So you came up with a, an interesting idea now that uh, the Conservatives are now essentially split into three factions. What are those, and is there any feeling of wanting to continue the Johnsonian uh, way? Yeah, I
1: last week I wrote a, wrote an essay for the uh, for Bornbrook magazine um, on the leadership election. And I basically argued that it's the most momentous leadership election probably since 1975 when Thatcher won the leadership from Edward Heath. Um, And the reason for that is that the Conservative Party is usually split between two factions. Like all British parties, because of the the first-past-the-post system, are coalitions that are formed before the election. Mm -hmm. Whereas in Europe, where they have proportional representation, you have coalitions formed after the election. And the Conservative coalition has usually been between two sides. So, you know, in the 1970s, you had the kind of Manchester Liberal side, which was um, encapsulated by Margaret Thatcher and Keith Joseph. But then you had the more economic centrist side, which was Heath's wing of the party. Um, and then in the 1990s, you had um, basically two factions, which that were Thatcherites who were Eurosceptic, um, but they were still in favor of staying within the EU, they just wanted to reform it from within. And then you also had the Thatcherites who were very pro-EU and wanted further uh, integration, wanted to lead from within. Um, And more recently you've had the, um, you know, you've had the Cameron wing of the party, which is socially very liberal, uh, essentially Blairite, uh, but wants a slightly smaller state. Mm-hmm. And the libertarian wing of the party, which wants to take Thatcher's economic reforms much farther. Uh, and they're very kind of classical liberal, very kind of whiggish in their outlook. And I think you've still got those two factions within the Conservative Party. But now there's a third faction, which I kind of termed the, you know, the Red Wallers, the those who favor the Red Wall, which is it basically that coalition was drawn from a kind of ta- a, a, a town and shire coalition and the town side of that sh- uh, coalition they were patriotic like the like the shires but you know they weren't so keen on economic the economic side of Thatcherism.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: you know that you know they want a kind of a, a, a state that provides good quality public services that can provide good quality public transport and infrastructure because of course they rely on these things and they've had Uh, decades during which these things have been left that have been neglected and have been left to go to rack and ruin and on the social side of things they're much more conservative so they want very tough criminal justice they want crime and especially what's unfairly called petty crime you know things like you know graffiti and littering and burglary and muggings and things like that Mm. taken very seriously um they're against the the legalization of marijuana they're in favor of much lower immigration um they're in favor of more traditional uh, values they're instinctively socially conservative so you know you have that combination and i think a few of the newer members of the party people like miriam kate uh, who are so um giving a conservative party fringe uh, as member of a fringe um uh, panel for Unheard magazine. Uh, she we, clearly... Peter un-
0: Hitchens. Uh,
1: no, it wasn't. It was... Oh, yeah, it was Peter Hitchens, Ed West, Matthew Goodwin, and yeah, yeah. Miriam Gates. Yeah. She clearly understands that new constituency, which is kind of... You, you know, they're not in favour of further trimming the size of the state, but they are in favour of patriotism and social conservatism and lower migration, tough on crime. Um, so you have this kind of nascent, probably quite incohate uh, faction within the party and it adds a third wing. And I also think it's the part of the party that is, the remaining part of the party that's genuinely electable. I, mm. don't, think, I don't think there's an election-winning constituency among libertarians. I don't think there's an election-winning constituency among Blairites in blue. The Conservative Party will never be forgiven on the Islington dinner party circuit for Brexit. They're not <laughs> going to win those back with talk of net zero and, and, uh, and, and taking Labour's side on the trans rights debate, right? They're just not going to win these people back. I, you know, there are very few genuine libertarians in the country. Uh, you know, you might get the, the old retired colonel uh, in Berkshire who, you know, spends his day complaining at the golf club that, you know, taxes are too high and, you know, benefits are too high. But that's about it. Um, the Red Wall Constituency can win. There's definitely a coalition there for any political party that wants to grab it. And I think it would be much easier for the Conservative Party to get rid of their, you know, to get rid of their kind of Thatcher cargo cult and, and, and go a little bit more left-wing, maybe reform the state a bit and, and, and go about it that way, mm-hmm. but, to, you know, to make it more efficient, but certainly to have a strong state uh, and at the same time be socially conservative and patriotic than it would be for Labour to get rid of these real near religious faiths that they have in, in progressivism, social progressivism and uh, individualism. Um, however, to answer your question, I see very few, I see very little sign of that in any of the remaining six candidates.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, they're all pretty much Kemi Badenoch might be the exception. There are hints there that she is, and and, and perhaps she actually is, but can't say it because of the, the election she's oh, currently yeah. trying to win. Um, but certainly, you know, Morden and Tugendhat are both the Cameron wing of the party. They're social liberal. They're, they're basically Blairites who want a slightly smaller state than mm-hmm. Labour. Um, and then you have Liz Truss and... Um, uh, you have Liz Truss, Rishi Sunak, and uh, Pen- and who's the other one? Whose name? I forget now. Um, is it just Badnock
0: Or was it Liz Truss? Yeah, Liz Truss, Rishi, Rishi Badenock, uh, Morden, and Tutana. Right, so there's just the five, five.
1: right? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it seems that they're all divided between this line of of, of kind of Thatcherites and Cameroons, if you like um, and i don 't see much representation for that red waller seat, which that really could win a landslide if if somebody went out and, and, and reinvented the Conservative Party as that party it, it, it forget about an eighty seat majority it could win a two hundred seat majority mm-hmm. i mean it could win the biggest majority
0: for a century and and as you 've mentioned all the Well, I think the majority of the candidates have put themselves forward. Uh, They seem to all be presenting themselves as the the next Margaret Thatcher. Um, So we've had the pandemic, we've we've got the cost of living crisis. Uh, We have the war in Ukraine, which is making that worse. What sort of conservative political figure should we be... Um, should these candidates be, be looking up to if it, if it's not Thatcher, in your opinion? Well, I'm sure many people have, will
1: have read this already, but Aris Rusanos, um in ForUnheard.com wrote an absolutely brilliant uh, cri de coeur demand, basically imploring the Conservative Party to see some sense and to realise that what they need isn't Margaret Thatcher it's Harold Macmillan Harold Macmillan after the war understood that for conserva- for conservatism not the conservative party but conservatism with a small c to flourish in britain people needed homes people mm. needed jobs people needed stability so they could form the family units that were that are basically the building blocks of conservatism and he set about building millions of houses across Britain to replace those that had been destroyed in the Second World War and the Blitz, uh, but also to clear out some of the slums that were still remaining in Britain as well to provide good quality homes. He he had the state roll up its sleeves, grab a shovel, and start building. Um, And he was unafraid to use the power of the state to do that. And I think that that's what the... I mean, getting back to what we were talking about with Boris Johnson... If if after the pandemic had, had finished, I, I understood that that consumed a lot of time. But if he, the British state needs a huge amount of reform, and a lot of it is incredibly complicated. It takes big brains to see each individual part, but probably an even bigger brain to see how they all fit together and work off each other. It would need real. Rock ribs and uh, and serious political nows to push some of the reforms that are needed through. however, even if he hadn't bothered with that, even if he'd done three simple things, he would be fine now, and he would probably be the most popular prime minister that we've had since Thatcher in the days after the Falklands War. and the three things are this: if he had come down hard on crime, tackled knife crime, antisocial behavior, I mean antisocial behavior is usually just like you know. Raising thuggishness, right, among young people mainly. So, if he tackled that, if he'd empowered the police to really get a grips with that, if he had dealt with migration, i.e., shut the South Coast and, and made sure that that wasn't a free for all, and if he'd even just started building or presented a credible plan where he's going to start rebuilding infrastructure, rebuilding houses to deal with yeah. the housing crisis we've got. I mean, those aren't really complicated things. They just need a, a will to go and do It's like, okay, we're going to build more houses, and that's the end of it. We're going to deal with this crime. We're going to shut the South border. So it just needs a decision. And if he had done that, then I think he might have been one of the most popular prime ministers, as I say, since Thatcher, you know, after the Falklands War. Um, but he didn't. Now, uh, now I think if a, if one of these candidates can do that, one of these candidates can kind of Grasp that now, while at the same time thinking about some of the much bigger problems that Britain faces, like it's, you know, the productivity issue that we have in the economy Mm. with very low productivity, which is a complex issue to solve, uh, like our kind of grand strategy and where we sit in the world, which is a really complicated thing to solve. Then I think that that is. that is the sort of thing that would work and is the sort of prime minister that we need. Uh, Ideally, we would have somebody to solve the big problems as well, but on a very basic level, it's somebody who would be willing to use the power of the state to solve some of the very obvious problems that we've got with the country.
0: It doesn't seem that uh, many of the candidates are following that line there because uh, every sort of debate surrounding this leadership contest just seems to be about taxes and lowering taxes. Uh, I haven't actually seen, apart from Tom Tutanat yesterday, who said we need to build more houses. Didn't exactly say how, though, but uh, that that's pretty much the first time I've heard any of the candidates talking about homes. And I think as well, what, what concerns me is, for example, even uh, Kemi Badenoch's pitch, uh, she she doesn't mention the family once, I don't think. Uh, she, she talks about, you know, we have to rekindle our sort of love for free markets. And so it, it doesn't seem that any of the candidates are really following that that line that you've suggested.
1: Well, no, and I think half of the problem is that the Conservative Party has just become a, a, a kind of a... In the same way that the Labour Party has become completely um, beholden or... or, or has come to completely worship almost as a religion um, critical race theory and the whole um, gamut of progressive individualist ideas that surround that so the Conservative Party has come to completely worship Margaret Thatcher and as with many religions once they start to to mature they become an almost um, an unthinking prejudice rather than something that's thought and considered I mean we have to remember that Thatcher didn't just lower taxes. She probably, before that, started to reform the economy uh, in theory to make it more efficient and more productive, and that brought in increased tax revenues and allowed her to lower taxes. Right, but now, rather like as a you know a Christian might, instead of thinking that, instead of understanding that. You know to be a Christian means in, you know embodying kind of Jesus Christ and the way that he lived his life in your life uh, and, and have just decided that it means going to church once a week so the Conservative Party have decided that you know Margaret Thatcher is the only way or, or Thatcherism is the only way that we can do these things and that simply involves cutting taxes right I mean it's ridiculous I, I mean Britain Britain is in no state at the moment to cut taxes. If they had wanted to do that during the Osborne years, when the markets had set interest rates very low, I mean the British government could borrow money for over 10 years uh, at less than one okay? percent.? That was the time to run big deficits. The market, the, like the bond market, was almost telling the British government to borrow more money. Okay? Now interest rates are going up because inflation is going up.. Yeah. Uh, money is becoming more scarce, so the idea that you can just slash taxes which would increase the deficit and ultimately probably have quite a limited effect on economic growth and productivity. Uh, and somehow that represents good policy that represents the solution to our problems is it's, if it wasn't so frightening, it would be laughable. <laughs> uh, but, but you, but you are right. Uh, you know, because of that, all of the candidates have to, all of the candidates have to kind of skew their pitch in that direction. Um, it's almost like a kind of liberal centrist Republican running for a primary in, in, in the Deep South, right? They have, yeah. to, you know, they have to skew their pitch in that direction.
0: It's, it's the short-term vision, which I've become, I've started to despise a bit in politics, is that the, these ideas are just sort of you know, a, a quick fix, a quick uh, to entice the voters, you know, a bit of money in their pocket. But uh, there doesn't seem to be long-term strategy anymore, uh, like in the days of uh, Charles de Gaulle. Like he, France had the uh, ten-year plans in place for the economy, uh, mm-hmm. huge strategy. I can't remember the last time a British prime minister had a, a long-term vision for the for the country.
1: Yeah, I mean Britain tends to be. I mean Britain generally is not. That way inclined as much as the continental countries. You know, we, I mean, there are benefits to the British system of kind of uh, benign neglect, so to speak. Um, But I would guess the last kind of prime minister to have that sort of vision might might be somebody like um, Harold Wilson. You know, the 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 kind of the white heat of technology, Mm. Um, and it was you know it was born from this idea that Britain. Had started to fall behind its continental rivals, and you know the idea was to to find techno, to, you know, to fund and find technological solutions to increase our productivity and thus increase our GDP growth and our long-run GDP potential. And probably it needs something like that kind of vision again. Um, and clearly, I mean, if only Julian there had been an individual who was obsessed with solving. Britain's administrative and economic problems and finding interesting ways to um, to involve technology and, and systems analysts in that. And if only there had been somebody like that. But of course, Dominic Cummings was never in number 10 Downing Street and never had the ear of the prime. I mean, you know, to get rid of somebody like that at a moment like this, who uh, is also one of his obsessions is Otto von Bismarck. And... Uh, you know, the way that Cummings calls him a diabolical genius. Um, And, you know, in foreign policy terms at the moment, uh, the crisis in Ukraine has really crystallized a lot of trends that were already slowly happening. And it's really set the uh, the, the world down a course which is going to... I I mean, at the very least, it's going to unwind globalization. And that's going to destroy a lot of wealth. It's going to lead to, I mean, I'm not a globalist, but to see this kind of chaotic, sudden unwinding mm. of, uh, of globalization is going to create all kinds of economic problems. You, you know, you're know, you going to have a lot of inflationary spurts as supply chains suddenly start breaking down and, and countries have to either reshore or nearshore their production, right? Uh, in addition to that, you've also got the military aspect. It's entirely possible that we're going to see a war in the South China Sea, which will make Ukraine look like the Falklands war compared with the second world war, right? I mean, that, that is the real big league. And, you know, if that happens, all bets are off and and we really need all of the, uh, uh, of course, you know, people like Kemi Badenoch don't speak about this. And I I guess Penny Mordent doesn't speak about this, but those, Politicians which do speak about foreign policy are absolutely aware with the fairies. Like oh, yeah. Tugendhat, I mean, Tugendhat represents an existential threat. I mean, the possibility of him becoming prime minister is an existential threat to the United Kingdom mm. because he wants to go to war with Russia, okay? He, he, he kind of hides this by using kind of um, military jargon as synonyms, like, you know, no-fly zone, yeah, and breaking yeah. the Black Sea blockade. But ultimately... What he means is going to war with Russia. Like Liz Truss is, even though she was foreign secretary, is incompetent in terms of foreign policy. And I think the whole establishment still has this view that uh, if we tag along with the Americans and if we buy into the dominant ideology in in Washington, which is kind of, you might call it liberal universalism or liberal interventionism or neoconservatism, but it all means the same thing. It means... This idea that the world would be a better place if all countries were remade within America's in America's image, as kind of liberal consumerist democracies. And if we all just traded lots with each other, and if we all just drew down our borders for capital, the you know, the flow of capital and goods and services and people, then the world would be a much safer place. Well, that world is disappearing before our yeah. eyes. And the United Kingdom had better start thinking about where it sits in this because it can no longer hide behind the skirts of the deepest and most powerful economic bloc in the world, in the EU. Um, The United States is rapidly drawing dividing lines between who it considers its friends and its enemies. So, you know, I mean, are we going to be non-aligned like India? Are we going to just get into every single war that the Americans want us to? Are we going to go with the EU? I, I mean, we need to think about these things.
0: And, um, yeah, for, well, the first thing we need to think about is uh, who will be our next Prime Minister. Um, so let, let's look at the candidates who are up for the job. Um, well, we'll start with Tom Tutinat. So in the last round of votes, he only received 32. So he's in real danger of being eliminated in the next round. Um, yeah, Andrew, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, well, you've already given us some, but uh, what would a Tutankh Premiership look like? What, well, first of all, he's kind of a what I would call
1: a soft libertarian. So on social issues, he would allow the kind of the, you know, the metropolitan civil service, elite consensus run on social issues, you would see very little pushback on um, things like migration, things like, um, you know, trans rights, things like embodying and teaching of critical race theory in schools, that sort of thing would just, you know, continue. Um, I think economically, he does have some quite nice ideas. I mean, given the, I wouldn't mind seeing, Somebody like that, given some role uh, in terms of economic development, Kemi Badenoch talked about separating the treasury from yeah. the, from the, you know, the the kind of the the accountancy part of it from the economic growth part of it. And I think if you could shove Tugendhat into that kind of economic development role, he might be quite good because it would keep him away from foreign policy, and it would keep him away from social policy. And some of the ideas that he had in his, um, in his kind of commencement speech, if you like, when he opened his campaign, like setting up institutes of technology around the country and improving vocational education seemed to me quite good. Uh, and I also think he wouldn't be too averse to having a pretty decent-sized state and looking to solve some of the economic issues we have and provide decent public services. But certainly on the on the social side of things, which I think a lot of your listeners perhaps care about and the Bornbrook magazine guys care about and any social conservative would care about, you would be a disaster. You would essentially cement in place. uh, Absolutely disastrous sense of foreign policy. Um, I mean, he really genuinely could. Get Britain involved involved in a war against the nuclear armed power, which is a, I mean, represents a real existential threat to the United Kingdom. He don't forget, I mean, if well, has no ability to fight a war, a conventional war in Eastern Europe with Russia, which is a kind of a, a historic truism, right? Um, even the Wehrmacht didn't have the ability to do that. Okay, if you think that he would. Th- See that reality and 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 trim his views on it. Then I'm sorry, but this is a man who stood up in Parliament and said that we should stay in Afghanistan.
0: Uh, he also suggested that uh, Britain had just had its uh, backside
2: So, sorry, finish,
1: yeah, he also um, you know Britain had just had its backsides handed to it in Helmand by the Taliban and had to hand over to the U.S. Marines. We had no ability to uh, hold on to Kabul. We had no ability to supply our forces there. And yet he said that we should stay there. I mean, he's he's a dangerous fantasy when it comes to foreign.
0: Well, he, he also suggested uh, expelling uh, all Russian citizens from from the U.K. So, uh, But at the same time, he says that uh, I think it was about the Saudi Prince, um, Mohammed bin Salam. he said something like he had a great vision for his country, and uh, he was an incredible, incredibly positive, like uh, man for for the world, and just seems to have uh, some of the worst uh, ideas going in terms of foreign policy. Yeah. So. Uh, And uh, Tom Tootinat as well, he uh, voted for Remain. And I was just wondering, well, although he did vote for Theresa May's deal as well, do you think we've passed the Brexit division lines now? Um,
1: yeah, I mean, it, yes, I do. Um, I think whoever takes over, certainly the Conservative Party, uh, would accept that Brexit is a done thing. And I think even whoever takes over of the late, I mean, Keir Starmer has said that Brexit's done thing as well. I would say, however, that there is a route to bring this back into the into the fray, and that's this: there's an issue over the Northern Ireland Protocol. Yeah, I have a feeling that what Labour would do is in negotiations they would say we're going to solve this, you know, once and for all, and we're going to solve it in an advantageous way to Britain that we'd go and negotiate with the EU and the EU would offer them something that allowed, uh, you know, would seem like a good deal or Labour would present as a good deal. But in fact, what it would do is it would bring the whole of Britain back into the customs union and single market, if not by law, like de facto. Mm -hmm. And then once we'd done that, then they would start, then the kind of the, 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 the Ramonas, the people who simply can't accept Brexit, then they would start arguing, well, we have to have a say. You know, we're having all of these laws and regulations passed, but we have to have a say. And by doing that, they might be able to kind of worm, worm the whole country yeah. back into the European Union. So, and I think that that, would, that is especially possible, If we have this continuing rolling crisis, which we're having, which, I mean, the cost of living crisis is going to get much worse. So I think that somebody like Tugendhat might, might follow that kind of, of route. He might, I mean, I don't, I don't think that he cares much about, I don't think any conservative in inverted commas uh, MP cares much about Northern Ireland. I think a lot of them would like to be shot of it, to be honest. Oh, yeah. So, um, you know, which again is, is, is so indicative of poor thinking strategically. But So I think that Tugendhat might possibly fall into that kind of line where he would be open to being manipulated by the EU, um, whereas somebody like Starmer would help the manipulation.
0: And I think as well, if, if we read back the Johnson deal, there are quite a lot of, issues which were just kicked down the road. Uh, for example, we, we still have the fishing transition period. So uh, what's gonna happen after that? And uh, I believe that there are lots of things which can be renegotiated in 2024. So for me, i, I still think we, we have to stick with the Brexiteers uh, at least for the, the next few years. And then after that, possibly, but, uh, yeah, the, the Johnson deal has left a lot of questions unanswered that uh, will have to be answered in the near future. Um, so let's look at the next candidate, who is arguably the the most interesting, is uh, Kemi Badenoch. So she received 49 votes in the last, um, the last round. It was up nine votes, but he's not in the best position. Uh, I think she was relying on uh, Suella Braverman's endorsement, but uh, that went to Liz Truss instead. Um, So, Andrew, what what can you tell me about Kemi Badenoch, which is uh, maybe a a glimpse of hope of the future? (laughs)
1: Well, the first thing you, uh, you said about her being the most interesting candidate, I think that's 100% true. She, she is a migrant, a first-generation migrant herself. She, she was born in the United Kingdom, but uh, grew up mostly in Nigeria. Um, she came here and worked in McDonald's, cleaning toilets and flipping burgers to pay herself through our university. Interestingly, she has a STEM degree yeah. in, uh, I think, IT engineering, something like yeah. that. Which I th- you. yeah absolutely so i think that in itself is a positive because a, a, a great deal of the problems in this country are the, the the lack of understanding of of technology and how it might be applied to make the country more productive um so i think all of those things are good i also think that a lot of the problems in the country are systems problems it's you know, it needs somebody who can look at the, the actual system and how it interacts to solve a lot of these issues. I know that, you know, systems engineering was something, or systems management was something that Dominic Cummings was really fascinated mm. by. So I think that that's the sort of thing that she could bring to the table. In addition to that, she's been quite sensible on tax cuts. She, you know, she has said that she's an instinctive tax cutter, she has said that she wants to reduce the size of the state. But she's also said that she's not going to get into a bidding war on tax cuts. She hasn't fallen into this kind of, you know, Tory thing that some of the other candidates have done where they immediately want to
0: cut taxes. And, And She said it would be targeted as well. It wouldn't just be cut everything. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I think in that sense, she sounds quite
1: sensible. On the cultural side of things, on the social side of things, I think that she's extremely strong. Mm. She is the only senior conservative empire I've seen who actually understands the cultural war issues and actually has the clarity of thought to be able to articulate those issues. And not only that, can actually stand up and take the rocks that come back in her direction um, to articulate, uh, articulate these in a very forceful way. I think most of the rest of the candidates kind of play lip service to it. They, they know that it's important to their voters, so they talk about it. But that's useless. That, that, in, in fact, in some ways, it's worse than useless because it, because it kind of energizes the opposition. And yeah. because they don't truly understand it, because they haven't truly thought about it properly, it, you know, they actually achieve nothing. You know, like the, the deep state, so to speak, in inverted commas, or the, the kind of the elite progressive consensus just runs rings around them. You know, I mean, we've had 12 years of Tory government in which organizations like Stonewall have taken loads of taxpayer money to entrench their position in almost every part of the state, and, and not just Stonewall, but other organizations as well. We've had 12 years of conservative government in which nothing has been done about the Human Rights Act, the Equalities Act, um, about the European Convention of Human Rights, about migration. I mean, what have they been doing during this time? And I think, so a lot of these people are, you know, obviously uninterested in this, obviously paying lip service to this, whereas Kemi Badenoch seems at least to understand it, to have the clarity of thought, to articulate it in a concise way, and to actually stand up and say that might be because she's a, you know, a black female migrant. So she can get away yeah, with saying yeah. this in a way that a white man might not be able to. But still, um, I think she'd be very, at the very least, she might draw a line in the sand and say, you know, this far that thou shalt go, but no farther. Um, at least she might be able to. Stem the tide a little bit, and I would have hope that she could maybe even turn it back.
0: Well, I think proof is in the pudding, and uh, one thing which she did very well was defending uh, women's rights uh, when the Gender Recognition act was first drawn up. Uh, there was uh, self-identification, which was, uh, but she pushed back very strongly against it, um, which I think has proven that she's, she's not all talk, she's uh, actually uh, ready to fight for this.
1: Yeah, she's spoken very persuasively as well about some of the issues facing ethnic minorities in the country. She spoke extremely well when it came to the race relations report, which caused mm. all kinds of hysteria among the left because it, it, it came to the conclusion that in fact, the data showed Britain wasn't systemically racist. There was racism in Britain, but it wasn't systemic. Um, and uh, Kemi Badenoch has spoken very well about that. Uh, She's also spoken about some of the issues that ethnic minorities face as well. Um, So I think she'd be... Look, wouldn't it be wonderful if a social conservative ran the Conservative Party? (laughs) I mean, you know, you might kind of... Your eyes might blink in the sun trying to remember when that was last the case, but it would be a nice thing indeed.
0: And uh, one one last thing, actually, I believe she's the only candidate who's not signed up to the uh, net zero pledge. So, and she she's been very critical of uh, Britain's position on net zero. So, we could be um, some changes around that. Um, yeah, I, I mean, my
1: probably not the time to go my into my views on that. But I actually think there's a. A potential compromise on net zero, and that actually, you could win conservatives around by making it an economic issue rather than a, rather than talking about, you know, sandal-wearing tree huggers. Um, <laughs> you know, you could what you could say is this: Look, hydrogen, battery storage, electric cars. You know, these are all going to be like huge industries in the future around the world whether we believe in environmental change or not, whether we believe that climate change is anthropogenic in nature or not, these are going to be big industries. Britain has natural advantages in some of these industries. And not only that, if you look at the cost, the cost of renewable energy, even without government subsidies, Wind energy is now considerably cheaper than gas in terms of new build. It's much cheaper to build more wind power than it is to build a new gas power station. And once you've built it, okay, there's maintenance costs, but there are maintenance costs with other things as well. So, you know, maybe you could also say it would give Britain cheaper energy in the long run, not right away, but in the long run. Uh, so, again, it would be strategic, strategic thinking. Um, and I think there are also ways that you can kind of soften the blow of that changeover so maybe if i mean i think britain can't have any even if you believe that climate change is anthropogenic even if you believe that mankind can do something about it britain can't britain's responsible for less than one percent of global co2 emissions it's china and america and india who are the who've got to do something about it they're like so but if you are interested in net zero what you could do is you could say like look Let's get involved in this new, this kind of twenty-first century industry that can provide export revenue and 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 uh, productivity gains and jobs for British industry for like eighty years hence. Right? This is uh, this is a potential way to go about it. But I, I think net zero as a as a positive in and of itself is I think it's going to be pretty much dead in the water, no matter who control. Yeah. I mean, maybe hat or Penny Mordaunt might be into it, but
0: <laughs> yeah. So let, let's move on to our uh, next candidate then. So we have uh, Liz Truss who got uh, 64 votes in the last round. Uh, so she she was a Lib Dem and as Peter Hitchin said, she probably still is one. Um, uh, she, she was a Republican as well back in the day, so really be arrested for treason. Um, yeah, well, what else can you tell me about her, uh, Collingwood?
1: <laughs> well, I think Liz Truss is endemic of everything that's gone wrong, not just with the Conservative Party, but the country as a whole. The, the fact that she has risen to being Foreign Secretary, which is one of the three great officers of state, outside Prime Minister, just shows the paucity of talent and intellectual quality in the in the among the british political class i think the fact that you know she's a cameron a-lister and for people who don't know the a-lister something that like david mm-hmm. cameron introduced to um really push his preferred list of candidates on local constituencies and of course liz Truss got there because she was a woman and she was excitingly liberal democrat <laughs> which is the sort of thing that david cameron really liked um So she's not a social conservative. Um, She's probably not a fiscal conservative. Um, During her time in the Foreign Office, she was far more interested in taking Margaret Thatcher tribute photographs for Instagram than she was in actually learning her brief, which led to her being utterly humiliated in Russia. Um, She is really clueless about foreign policy matters despite the fact that that should be her area of expertise having been foreign secretary for some time now she rose to she rose to prominence when she was in charge she was put in charge of doing trade deals which really involved her kind of going around the world again taking kind of instagram photographs and basically rolling over eu trade deals um and handing away the british family silver in exchange for very little because as part of the kind of Thatcher Cargo cult that dominates the Conservative Party. Uh, free trade is also one of their shibboleths. And uh, she
0: she formed the uh, free enterprise group of the of Tory MPs. Yeah, exactly. So
1: I mean Listrust is Liz Truss... Uh, let me put it this way. Listrust would solve none of the problem. I mean even if Liv Truss was a supremely... Even if she was a kind of William Gladstone type of incredibly hardworking, supremely competent administrator, she would solve none of our economic problems. She would solve none of our foreign policy problems because she's clueless about it. She has the wrong ideas on trade because even if you're a pro-free trader, those days are gone. The whole world is dividing between... Yeah. You know, the G7 block and the kind of the Russia, the Russo-Chinese block, and free trade is going to start breaking down and breaking down apace. So those days are gone. Um, she's useless uh when it comes to economic matters, and not only that, she is a vacuous, narcissistic idiot. Um so my general view on Liz Truss is that she would be a massive disastrous prime minister, and I have no idea how she even got to the cabinet, and the, and the thought that she could rise to being prime minister is endemic with everything that's wrong with this country.
0: Uh, well, the red flag for me was the, the fact that she uh, contributed to a book named, uh, I think it was Britannia Unchained or something, and the subtitle is uh, Global Solutions for uh, Growth and Prosperity. Uh, that for me is the instant red flag and um, the the one thing though maybe that's redeeming of her is that uh, she would scrap the Northern Ireland protocol as soon as she uh, came into power Would she though, Julian? Because
1: I think that she says she'll scrap the Northern Ireland protocol because she thinks that it'll help her gain votes now among the Tory leadership Mm. when it comes to actually sitting down with some Uh, dull but extremely competent uh, technocrats from the EU who will be sent to negotiate with her, and once he starts dropping the boom with threats on trade and all of that kind of thing, will she just do what Johnson did and, like, wimp out and and back down? I I suspect she will. Look, she couldn't even learn her brief during one of the biggest political crises enough to know that Voronezh and uh, Krasnodar were in Russia Right, she demanded that Sergei Lavrov, the foreign minister, withdrew his troops from. I think was it Voronezh and uh, Krasnodar the yeah, two regions, yeah, yeah. and and Lavrov said, "Well, don't you recognize Russia's sovereignty over those two regions?" He said, "We'll never do that." And the you know the poor ambassador to Moscow had to whisper in Truss's ear that actually they are Russian territory, <laughs> right? I mean, this is. Uh, I mean, this is like our generation's Cuban Missile Crisis, and we're sending morons like that who think that (laughs) the reason to go to Moscow is to take, you know, some shots that'll go well with the Conservative Party membership, uh, and to generally just say that they stood tough with uh, Russia, right? Uh, I mean, it's, it's pathetic, it's infantile, and she's not fit to be Foreign Secretary, let alone Prime Minister, so... I, I mean, if she if she won it, I would just weep and despair and, you know, half of the world would laugh at us.
0: Okay, strong words. Well, uh, if you're not a fan of uh, Liz Truss, maybe you're a fan of Penny Morden, who... Uh, this <laughs> <laughs> is, mean, like, from the sublime to the ridiculous, right? <laughs> <laughs> she, she received 87 votes in the last round. Um, she's had a few a few ministerial positions uh, women's and equalities minister international development the shortest serving defense minister and now a trade policy minister um yeah where where do we where do we go with penny morden than- well britain would go down the toilet with penny morden
1: wouldn't, wouldn't it i mean <laughs> um, look i mean if you read I haven't had the pleasure of reading Penny Morton's book, but I did read that um, um, one of the columnists Unheard, I think Will Young, maybe, um, he wrote about the book. How It's just awful. It's so... Uh, I mean, it's essentially the conservative version of Keir Starmer's soapy little essay that he wrote uh, a while <laughs> back, his little 14000 words thing. And, I, I mean, I... I read that, and I, I literally stopped after the first sentence because I, I counted that I've had six unnecessary words and, and, and three meaningless cliches in the first sentence. <laughs> so I just uh, no, I'm not reading this. And I, I get the impression that Penny Mordent is very similar. I actually think Penny Mordaunt would make a fantastic leader of the Labour Party. Mm-hmm. Really good. Because, you know, she's 100% with the Labour Party on social issues. She's real, so a genuine social liberal. Um, She sounds quite competent. She's got good, a high degree of verbal intelligence. Um, And she's patriotic. And and, and that would go down well. But she's completely vacuous. And as far as I understand from a former boss within one of the local councils that she worked with, but more importantly, um, uh, the Lord David Frost, um, she is administratively incompetent, isn't she? Like Frost came out and said basically that she was so bad at her job and so uh uninterested in actually learning the brief or doing any work that he had to request that Johnson move her from his uh, Brexit negotiation team. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, what to say about Penny Morton? She's 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 a social liberal, um, she. Would generally favour the kind of the Cameron Osborne consensus on the economy, which was a disaster then and it would be even worse now. Um, and she's a lazy and incompetent administrator. I wonder these, was it 83 votes that she got? I wonder if these 83 people have actually heard of her or whether they just thought the other candidates were so bad and they hadn't heard of her, she might be better. Like, why would Conservative members possibly vote for somebody who is aligned with labor
0: on almost everything is beyond me. I don't know. And I think the, the main issue, which has been surrounding Penny Moreland is, is the trans issue because uh, she was really pushing for self-identification. She wanted to rename women uh, pregnant people. Um, and now she's trying to backtrack a little bit. Um, Colin, what? Why do you think the trans issue has become such a big issue, or it, or is it even a big issue, or is this a Westminster bubble issue?
1: Well, no, I think it's a genuinely big issue around the country, but it's a, uh, it's it's just the latest avatar of um of the genuine uh, of the general progressive liberal takeover of the country. That kind of. Since the late 1960s, it's gone almost unnoticed um, among the general population. But now we're starting to see the fruits of that. Now we're starting to see the effect of the long liberal march through the institutions. People are starting to wake up to it and they don't like what it means and they don't like the effect it has. Now the trans issue is, is the kind of the is the point of the uh, the point of the spear at the moment for that group of individuals it's the latest kind of revolution the latest boundary that they're pushing back on so i think it is a big issue and of course penny Morden is 100% behind the uh, social progressives on that but it that might be the the thing that the other candidates are using to hit her over the head with in this uh, leadership mm-hmm. election but it's not just that she's kind of pro immigration she's very socially liberal she uses the language of progressives um it's not just the uh, the kind of the LGBTQ plus kind of stuff that she's very much in favor of. It's all the other stuff as well, the kind of, you know, the third and fourth wave feminism stuff, uh, the general social uh, liberalism, high levels of migration, the idea of multiculturalism. She's for it all. I mean, she should really be the leader of the Labour Party. I don't understand how she's managed to garner so many votes, and I don't understand why she finishes so high in polling of the members either. Surely they're social conservatives, you would have thought. I mean, it would be like Labour voting for Margaret Thatcher. I mean, it just wouldn't do it.
0: I think as well, the I think the average is like 57-year-old uh, blokes as well, the, the Tory membership. So I, I was uh, equally very surprised uh, at how high she was polling. Um, but let's move on to the final candidate, uh, Mr. Rishi Sunak, who received 101 votes in the last round. So it's uh, yeah, it's looking very likely that he'll be in the final two. Um, so he was our chancellor for a couple of years. Uh, if I'm honest, I, I hadn't heard too much about him until he became uh, chancellor. It was quite a surprise when he replaced uh, Sajid Javid. Um, Colin Wood, what, what, what are your thoughts on uh, Rishi Sunak? I, I mean, I guess... of it, OK, so the first thing to
1: say is that he's clearly more competent and thoughtful and serious than either Liz Truss or Penny Morton's. Um, Tugan Hatz, of course, has no experience in a ministerial role, and Kemi Badenoch has got experience, but in more junior roles. She, You know, she's never sat in a cabinet meeting. Um, Sunak is clearly a serious and thoughtful person. He's clearly extremely bright. He is organized and uh, assiduous in the work that he does, I would say. However, I do not think he is electable in a general election. I think he would have a seriously hard time winning a general election as leader of the Conservative Party. The reason I say that is twofold. First of all, his personal background, and secondly, the sort of policies that he would, one would imagine that he would undertake.
0: So What about his personal background exactly?
1: Well, his personal background is that you know, obviously, a lot of MPs are quite rich, but Rishi Sunak is really rich. I mean, Rishi <laughs> Sunak is, like, filthy rich. He is on the Sunday Times rich list. He's so rich. I mean, I think his, he and his wife combined are, are, are worth, like, not far shy of a billion dollars, a billion pounds, right? Um, do the... Cons- I mean... Did the Conservative Party really want to go into an election on the back of a cost of living crisis, which is seeing a lot of people pay as much as 25 or 30% of their incomes on energy alone, and where it's not just the working class who are suffering, but we're really starting to see now the middle class are starting to suffer. Do they really want to go into that election with... You know, a guy who is like on the Sunday Times rich list leading them. And I know that's maybe not fair. It's not kind of his fault that he's rich. and <clears throat> But, you know, the, and it's not just that, though. His wife was a non-dom. His wife was taking advantage of non-domiciled status yeah, uh, in order to avoid paying tax. I mean, not avoid, but uh, maximize, perhaps, is the way to put it, her, uh, her taxation. Um, he was also... And I believe I'm I'm American saying that they both also have offshore trusts as well. I might be wrong with that, but they they both have offshore trusts. These sort of things are likely to be seen by the British public as just unfair. I,
0: I, I, I just don't understand how the whole point of getting rid of Johnson was to try and clean the party's image again. It was someone with a lot of scandals, lots of baggage, someone who broke the law. And then they go and choose the the only other member who's also broken the law and has all of this baggage as well it, it just is bewildering well yeah it's not just that it's like for non-dom status you have to say that it's your
1: intention not to remain settled in the united kingdom and not only that but rishi sunak i believe also had a green card didn't he like a u.s yeah, yeah. green card and well, to get that Chancellor. yeah and it, to get that you have to tell the u.s authorities that you plan to settle forever in the united states So these kind of personal questions, I mean, it's just an open goal for the Labour Party, isn't it? They will batter him with this every single day. How can he possibly put taxes up for the ordinary people when he's got all kinds of tax maximum, you know, improvement schemes to minimise his tax bill? People will simply see that as unfair.
0: Starmer was was already hammering him about it in the last PMQs before uh, he's even got to the position, so... Well, exactly. It's it's just an open goal for Labour,
1: and not only that, but he clearly represents, as far as I can see, the kind of uh, the continuation of George Osborne, doesn't he?
0: Um, Mm. He he. Grown up conversation. He said, "We need a grown up conversation."
1: Well, yeah, the grown up conversation always ends up with kind of reduced public services and higher taxes, doesn't it? So, um, I I I can't see how that's going to be popular. Um, and finally, for all his kind of seriousness and his admirable uh, intellect and admirable uh, work ethic, he's not exactly the most charismatic person in the world, is he? I mean, can you imagine how dull an election between Keir Starmer and Rishi Sunak would be? <laughs> I mean, the debates aren't going to... I mean, the debates should go with, like, the Open University and on BBC Two rather than Primetime on <laughs> BBC One. It's... Um, It's really, I I just don't see how he could, I mean, I don't see how anybody really from the Thatcherite wing could win an election, but he, for all his qualities, would be in a difficult place, I would have thought, electorally.
0: Do you think uh, Britain is ready for its first first Indian, British Indian uh, Prime Minister? Yeah, don't see why not. I don't.
1: Like, I mean, I I don't think that... um, Actually, I mean, British people generally are... I mean, like, if you think about it, you know, in the 80s and 90s, our favourite pop star was Kylie Minogue, who was Australian. Favourite cricket commentator was... uh, It was Richie Benno, who was Australian. You know, we also loved uh, Michael Holding on the commentary box as well, who was Barbadian. Um, Mm. We you know, Britain has always been quite open to, um, you know, different cultures and and different ideas and quite high profile positions. We had a Jewish prime minister in the 1860s, right? Like at a time when there was still serious pogroms around Europe um, and long before the uh, Holocaust. So I I do not see a problem with a British Indian. Pretty Patel was pretty popular among the working classes before she turned yeah. out to be a busted flush, wasn't she? <laughs> so I um, I don't I really don't see uh, any issue with that at all. The big issue I see with Rishi Sunak is the same issue that I mean. Can you imagine how bad Rishi Sunak would go down in Scotland? You know, like if they thought if Nicholas Sturgeon made hay from the Johnson's old Etonian image. What are they going to make with Rishi Sunak's Davos man, global plutocrat image, right? <laughs> the, this is, uh, it's just an open goal for all the conservatives opposed. Yeah.
0: Okay then, so let's have some predictions then. How do you see the rest of the uh, contest unfolding?
1: I think at this stage, it's quite difficult to tell because, um, We've gone back to Tory leadership elections, which have that kind of beautiful purity of uh, backstabbing and Machiavellian Hmm. scheming. It's quite enjoyable to watch. And a lot of the candidates have got so much baggage with them that they are really taking it in the throat. There are stilettos being sunk between ribs all over the place. So... um, I think it's difficult to tell. Um, what's quite interesting about it is, I don't know whether this is because I live in a kind of social media bubble like everybody else does these days, but certainly I've got the impression that a lot of the more serious conservative political commentators um, have gone for Kemi Badenoch yeah. as their preferred yeah. candidate. So I noticed that Robert Toombs, the historian and um, Brexit mover and shaker, um, Rod Little, uh, the kind of hilarious gadfly, ha- ha- hated by the left. He went for her. Uh, Patrick O'Flynn suggested that she was the best candidate and there've been quite a few others as well, like quite serious people, um, who have endorsed her, but, and, and, and see her as the kind of unity's candidate for the right. But obviously it looks like the ERG are starting to whip people to vote for Liz Trust, despite the fact she's a Remainer, um... So I, I, I actually suspect that whoever emerges from Liz Truss or Kemi Badenoch as the, the right-wing candidate will go on and win it. Oh, really? I think that Yeah, I think that Liz Truss would have a harder... A harder run. I mean, at the moment, Rishi Sunak is just sitting back, but I think he has real problems among the Conservative Party membership. Um, I don't think... <coughs> oh, excuse me. Um, I don't think that they, they tend not to like the person who wielded the knife, right? Like Heseltine, Mm -hmm. Heseltine didn't get it, um, after Thatcher and, um, you know, he was never allowed close again. Um, so I think that he might struggle with the membership. I also think intrinsically they might understand that he's not that electable for all his qualities. Um, Ultimately, I know Penny Morden seems to be fabulously popular among the membership, but goodness me, one would hope that once they started to understand who she is and what she stands for, that she would start to fall backwards. Um, I don't think that Tugendhat is going to get past the next round. He didn't. Uh, he doesn't seem to have done enough
0: to uh, he achieve even, that. He even lost some votes. In the last round,
1: he did. I, I, I guess the only way it might happen is that if if the attacks on Maudens and the uh, and the slow realization that she is really a, a kind of a a, a Blairite, a, a, not just a Blairite and blue, but just a Blairite, maybe people will start migrating from Mordent towards Tugendhat. But I suspect that Sunak could pick up a few of those votes as well. So. I suspect it might be Liz Truss for all I've been saying. You know, I mean, a liberal Democrat, Republican, Republican. Uh. who's utterly incompetent might end up being... Um, I mean, she, again, you know, like the Conservative Party had Theresa May and then Boris Johnson, like two people who were really quite unencumbered by political, deep, deeply considered political opinions or political positions not people who had appeared drew their policy prescriptions from first principles, okay? And here we go again. Liz Truss goes from Liberal Democrat Republican to, you know, Thatcher tribute band. And it just seems to me that it's all kind of manufactured and calculated based on the you know, what will get her farthest in her career, Okay. What does she really stand for, Julian? Does anyone really
0: know? I don't think so. Well, someone I uh, follow quite uh, on on Twitter is uh, hashtag back Boris. Uh, He'll be delighted. He's uh, been pushing for Liz for leader for for quite a while now. But, uh, yeah, for me, who could make it through? Um... Yeah, because just looking at the numbers, it, Liz Truss probably has more uh, reserves than uh, than the others uh, because uh, probably once uh, Badenoch is, is knocked out, which I think will happen, uh, she'll have, well, with Braverman's as well, it, it's close to about 80, 90 votes uh, in reserve. So I think she'll just pip Mordaunt to the to the final two spots. That would um,
1: seem the most likely outcome to me as well. I c- can I ask you a question, though? What is Kami What are Kami Badenoch's odds at the moment? Do you know? Because I know she was about 40 or 50 to 1 last week, but I don't know if that's gone out at all. Uh, let's have a look. So I
2: normally use uh, Smarket
0: And... Uh, So, next Conservative leader. So, we have Rishi Sunak's, the current favourite, at 2.5. Morden is 3.2. Trust is 5.3 and Badenoch is 9. And Tutanat at 110. So- yeah,
1: I mean, I think 9 is a bit too short for Badenoch, but I do think there's a route still for Badenoch to win. It's, it's not a likely one, but it's a route, and the route is this, that Liz Truss, I I couldn't bring myself to watch the either the Conservative Home or the or the televised debate. Uh, she was um, terrible. Well, that's so so that's what I heard. I heard that Liz Truss was terrible. So I wonder whether Badenoch might get a few people migrating from Truss to her, um, and by gaining a few votes when Tugendhat goes out, generate a little bit of momentum that made people mm. think. Especially given... I mean, I think the Tory party, really, they only listen to the Spectator and the Telegraph. And in both the Spectator and the Telegraph, we've had quite a few of the commentators coming out in favour of Badenoch. So maybe on Monday... Monday's the next vote, I believe. Uh, I'm not sure when this podcast is going out, but we're we're recording this on a Sunday. So maybe on Monday, if Badenoch gains uh, 10, 15 votes, maybe? If she can kind of pull a little bit closer to truss then i think there might be some momentum there and actually she might overtake truss become the unity candidate for the right yeah get to the final two and i think in the final two she could defeat either sunak or anyone candidate. i think
0: yeah. yeah i think all the opinion polls show she should be smashing it so and i think
1: as well that i mean that's another thing julian the the MPs might well be cognizant of having knocked somebody out quite early that the membership resoundingly favor. Okay. So you might get a few MPs thinking, well, hang on a second. You know, we've got a couple of hundred thousand people here who've got to have a vote and we're going to knock out perhaps their two favorite, favorite candidates. (laughs) Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I was just slightly disappointed that uh, Suella Braverman chose to endorse Liz Truss because with her vote, so it was around 20 something, 25 that would have been enough if they had all gone to to at least come very close to Truss or even overtake her um, and that would have given Bader not Greal uh, momentum going into the, the further stages of the of the contests.
1: I think that Truss is handing out jobs. Um, I think Badenoch made the point that when somebody asked her about why Braverman didn't endorse her, Badenoch says, well, I'm not handing out jobs. I'm not Uh, promising anything. Um, I mean, I, 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 like you, thought that Braverman might swing behind Badenoch and also watching the interview um, that David Frost did with Julia Hartley Brewer when he sank his Stiletto through Penny Morden's ribs. Um, he he actually didn't commit to Liz Truss at that particular time, but what he said was he was looking for somebody who would cement Brexit, and that meant dealing with a lot of the economy's issues, and at the same time would be strong on the culture wars. And I thought that really that fitted Baderov very closely, yeah, and I was yeah. I was quite disappointed and and surprised even when he endorsed Trust because Trust to me seems very lightweight and is a Remainer or was a Remainer until it became politically expedient for her to be <laughs> a Brexiteer. Um, and, you know, Frost is one of the few members of the Conservative Party who are uh, universally liked and respected by both the MPs and the members. And he is a likable man and an obviously competent man. So, in fact, Julian, I wonder if the Conservative Party are now disappointed that they were in such a hurry to get rid of Johnson that Frost didn't have time to find himself a safe seat to drop into. Mm -hmm. Because I think, looking at these candidates, he would have wiped the floor with all of them. It would have been an inauguration (laughs) rather than a contest.
0: Yeah, I I agree. I agree. And um, I'm just trying to not think about what uh, Liz Trust Cabinet would look like I think they'd bring in all the the sort of freaks and fringes oh, yeah. of the Conservative Party or it, it would be like to it would a continuation of Johnson of just loyalty uh, gets you further.
1: Yeah, and as I say, she doesn't really have any political principles except what's Gonna win the next kind of 24 hour news cycle? What's gonna win the next hashtag trend on Twitter? Um, and you know, she's had one really major job, and as far as I can see, she's been absolutely useless at it, um, absolutely incompetent. So, I I really do fear for what would happen. I mean, any of these candidates, even my preferred candidate, Badenoch, is experienced and would be a risk, but. I don't know, Julian. The, you know, a risk seems to me better than guaranteed decline or catastrophe. Oh yeah.
0: <laughs> well, I think we've uh, said all we've we've had to say. Um, so I believe, yeah, we're recording this on Sunday. Tomorrow is the next round of votes, uh, and then I think each day there is a vote, and someone is eliminated until the final two. And then the vote is opened up to the member, the Conservative Party membership, and we'll have our new Prime Minister on the fifth of September. So, uh, Collingwood, it was an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, thanks once again for for coming on.
1: Well, very much appreciated. I've enjoyed it. It's got a lot off my chest. Had a good old rant and a moan and a whinge, <laughs> as is every Englishman's. Uh, Inalienable rights.
0: So, uh, oh, been yes. an absolute thanks. pleasure. Thank you, and uh, thanks everyone for listening. Uh, we'll be back. Uh, well, I'm not sure when we'll be back, but uh, we will be back. Anyway, thanks very much.